Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. You may remember what happened next. The people decided to build a city and at its center, a tower. One that would be tall enough to reach all the way up into, well, heaven. God took notice of what the people were doing and, well, God did not approve. Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing will be withheld from them which they intend to do. Come, let's go down, and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. Yep, the Tower of Babel sort of messed things up for all humankind, at least according to some interpretations of the biblical story. When we can't speak the same language as our neighbors, it's not just frustrating, it becomes impossible to see their points of view. And so, eventually, we wind up killing each other. For thousands of years, different movements responded to this dilemma in different ways. The Roman Catholic Church, for example, made sure that its members all shared a common language, Latin, regardless of their mother tongue. Some thinkers considered constructing a communal language from scratch— Francis Bacon proposed a system of ideograms, not unlike Chinese characters, that would bypass written words altogether. But these efforts were aimed at grandiose goals like getting closer to God or imposing a logical order on the entire universe. Not exactly grassroots. So it only makes sense that the hero of today's story was a total amateur. Not a philosopher, not a linguist, but a short, chain-smoking ophthalmologist by the name of Ludwig Lazarus Zamenhof, known as LL to his friends and future historians. Zamenhof was a Polish Jew coming of age amidst the clash of European empires in the late 1800s. And he had an audacious dream, a world with no more war. Maybe, he thought, people would stop fighting if they could just talk to each other. He grew up in this multicultural city of Bialystok, and he was very convinced, as he wrote later on, that it was language that was the most profound barrier among these four groups of people, Germans, Poles, Jews, and Russians. Esther Shore is a professor of English at Princeton University. She studied Zamenhof for years and wrote a critically acclaimed book, Bridge of Words, about LL and his legacy. And... So he played around with this as a very young man, but his idea was not to replace native languages, but to create a second language for all. And it would be easy to acquire. It could be learned in days, he used to say. It would be an equalizer because there wouldn't be sort of a powerful 800-pound gorilla language, you know, imposing itself on other people. And it would be a way for people to start talking, to have conversations. In 1887, L.L. Zamenhof formally published his first easy-to-learn lexicon under the rather uninspired title of International Language. But he and his creation would soon become much better known by the pen name he used, Dr. Hopeful, translated as Doctoro Esperanto. Hello and welcome to Annotated. I'm Rebecca Shinsky. And I'm Jeff O'Neill. In this episode... We'll look at how one man's dream of a universal language eventually inspired millions around the globe and made a mark on politics and popular culture and even offers a little hope for our own current failures to communicate. Today's episode is brought to you by National Geographic Books. 
The Cave is the incredible memoir of Imani Balur, a young doctor and activist who ran an underground hospital in Damascus, humanizing the enduring crisis in Syria. The only woman to have ever run a wartime hospital in Syria, she saved many from the atrocities of war while having to face the patriarchal conservatism around her. Amani Balor is a game changer. Listen, she will be remembered as one of history's greatest. She's a passionately committed humanitarian, and she is determined to help others escape the horrors that she survived. Make sure to pick up the memoir, The Cave by Amani Balor and Rania Abuzaid, for a memoir that expands on the 2019 Oscar-nominated film by the same name, which documents her experience running the hospital, shielding children from horrific sarin attack, losing colleagues, trying to employ more women in the hospital, and eventually leaving and becoming a refugee. So make sure to read about this amazing woman. And thanks again to National Geographic Books for sponsoring this episode. Saluton, parolas Alexo. Kaj odial ginote ni ludas tabludoin. Tabludoin. Ah, kio estas tio? Kiu parolas? Parolas Tomaso. Parolas Tomaso, oh, bone, bone. Jen la strangaj jetkuboj kun multaj flankoj. Interese. Estas dek flankoj. Estas ok flankoj. Before we go any further, we should probably talk a little bit about what Esperanto is. Especially because I have to admit that before this episode, I didn't know what it was. Well, it's a constructed auxiliary language. The latest estimate is that more than 2 million people speak it to some degree in approximately 115 countries. Right, but what is it? What's it made of? When Zamenhof set out to design a universal language, he didn't start completely from scratch. He leaned heavily on Romance languages, mixing in some Germanic and Slavic elements, and sprinkled it all in with a little classical Greek. The idea was to create phonemes that people, at least Europeans, would recognize and feel comfortable with. But then he stripped away a lot of the stuff that makes most languages so frustrating to learn, like gender-specific nouns, verb conjugation, and all those exceptions to the so-called rules. Prefixes and suffixes are intuitive. For example, happy is goya. Goya. And sad is malgoya. Malgoya. See? Now you're speaking Esperanto. Chuvere. Whoa. Chitoa estas telel fasila mi estas moyosa. Wow, All right. this is easy. <laughs> I am awesome. <laughs> Slow down there. I got a little excited, but really, the idea of anyone can do it was Zamenhof's whole guiding principle. He provided the building blocks, and if the right word didn't exist, the user could coin it on the spot in a way that any other Esperanto speaker would understand immediately. Zamenhof's real distinction was to see that in order to make a human language it had to stay in the hands of human beings and not in the hand of its founder, maker, inventor, maestro, as he was called. So he gave this language to the users of Esperanto, and that was really unprecedented in the history of uh, invented or planned languages. It was a remarkable thing to do. I think it was the most brilliant thing he did was to say to people, okay, it's yours, build it together, build it as a collective they would be enacting connection while they spoke and, and made the language. A small movement of Esperantists started to grow in Eastern Europe and soon spread west and beyond. Zamenhof published additional grammar books and dictionaries, and in less than two decades, Esperanto speakers could be found from New Zealand to New Brunswick. 
In August 1905, the first World Esperanto Congress was held in Boulogne-sur-Mer on the coast of France. Nearly 700 Esperanto speakers representing 20 nationalities were in attendance. That was, by all accounts, just a remarkable event where people walked in speaking this language and were intelligible to all the other people, whatever country they came from. And that was the beginning of a long tradition that's still going, the tradition of an annual Universal Congress. And I've been to these, and they are astonishing. You know, you're sitting next to someone from China, and someone from Turkey, and someone from Vietnam, and someone from Togo. And you're all speaking the same language. Esperanto was officially a movement. It even had its own flag, green and white, with a five-pointed star representing five continents, sort of like the five Olympic rings. There was also a soaring anthem. The delegates established a language committee and endorsed Zamenhof's Declaration on the Essence of Esperantism, which had five fundamental points. Among them, the decree that the movement was to be politically, religiously, and morally neutral. Esperanto belonged to no one and was open to everyone. And with that, Zamenhof formally resigned from leadership of the Esperanto movement, in part for the very idea that it not be tied to any one leader. But also, he worried that anti-Semitism directed his way would hinder its progress. Zamenhof would live just long enough to see the Great War engulf the planet, a heartbreaking reversal of Dr. Hopeful's dream. Indeed, he died of a heart failure in 1917 in Warsaw, where his grave would become something of a pilgrimage site for legions of Esperantists who followed. Yet despite the war and the loss of its visionary, Esperanto flourished. The 1920s were basically its heyday. Esperanto almost became the official language of the new League of Nations. The French Academy of Sciences recommended it for all international science communications. Then came the pushback. For example, only a year later, it was banned in all French schools. Meanwhile, the wish that Esperanto would remain ideologically pure was a pipe dream. By definition, it was a blank slate, and it would be adopted by unions and parties of all stripes, kicked around like a political football. Anarchists and nationalists alike claimed it as their own. Adolf Hitler denounced it as a Jewish conspiracy, though the Nazis themselves later created a national German Esperanto League. The Soviet Union also promoted its own Esperanto association before Joseph Stalin changed his mind and began purging Esperantists as enemies of the state. And Esperanto couldn't avoid the Cold War either. In the 1950s, the president of the Esperanto Association of North America, a fierce anti-communist named George Allen Connor, began launching McCarthy-style attacks against his counterparts in Europe and Asia. As the Universal Esperanto Association debated whether to expel Connor, many American Esperantists broke ranks to form a new Esperanto League, which today is known as Esperanto USA. The split was a low point for Esperanto in the United States, and around the world the movement seemed to falter. But in the 1970s and 80s, they saw something of a renaissance. The universal language began to gain strength in unexpected places, from the Middle East to Southeast Asia to South America, where it offered what its creators had sought in the first place, hope. At that time, Chile was under a very cruel dictatorship. Chile was a very closed country to the rest of the world. The human rights were violated in my country on a daily basis. I had friends who were killed by the secret police. Very terrible. 
Dr. Jose Antonio Vergara is a respected epidemiologist who has traveled and lectured all over the world. He would eventually serve on the board of the Universal Esperanto Association. But in the 1980s, he was a young man in search of connection. I knew about this language, and once I found a letter in in a paper, and I wrote to the guy that sent this letter, and he offered this course. I learned it, and I discovered it. it was pretty easy to learn. And actually, I, I was amazed to find people in many places to uh, be in contact with by correspondence. There wasn't any internet at that time. So we used letters to communicate with people in different countries. For me, it was a real opportunity. Esperanto gave me a sense of belonging to a wider world where people lived more normal lives, where democracy was sure and human rights were respected. It helped me to have hope about the future, that what we were experiencing at that time in my country was an exception. And as his career advanced and he had the means to travel, Dr. Vergara says he found a built-in bond wherever he went. The fact that I speak Esperanto made me important as a guest for the friends who were waiting for me there in different places. Yes, I can speak English, I'm fluent in English, but I never feel as confident as with Esperanto. With Esperanto, you can have a conversation on equal footing because everyone is making some effort to get this language. We can discuss about many, many different things with different levels of seriousness. We have joy using this language. As a public health epidemiologist, I had the chance to communicate the findings of this field to ordinary people from different countries using this language. And that was beautiful. I am convinced about the similarity or the commonness of our human family. I feel that I belong to the global community of people. Nobody can take that from me. The book service of the Universal Esperanto Association lists about 4,000 titles in its catalog, both translations and original works. The Scottish poet William Auld wrote primarily in Esperanto and in 1999 became the first Esperantist nominated for the Nobel Prize in Literature. I'm not telling you that this is a massive movement because it isn't, but you can find small pockets of interesting and nice people everywhere. Today, Esperanto is probably less organized but better known than ever before. And that's thanks, of course, to this little thing called the Internet. Paid membership in Esperanto associations is dwindling, but the language is one of the most overrepresented online. The Esperanto Wikipedia page has about as many entries as the Turkish or Korean versions. And since the language learning site Duolingo launched its Esperanto course five years ago, nearly two million people have registered. And there's YouTube. Hi there, my name is Alex, and three years ago, I started teaching myself how to speak the language of Esperanto. Saluton, mio nomo estas Alex. Alex Miller is an Atlanta-based actor and filmmaker who's created nearly 100 video lessons for English speakers interested in Esperanto. He has a master's degree in English, but he claims he never even heard of Esperanto until he was watching reruns of Frasier. Buenas noches. Habla español? Uh, not really. It's no matter. I'm sure you're schooled in the 
international language. Oh, yes, right. I'll say something amusing in Esperanto. <laughs> yeah, so I, I heard this mention of, of Esperanto and, and Fraser, so I Googled it and looked it up. And I read that, oh, this is the easiest language in the world to learn. This has specifically been streamlined and, and made to be easy to pick up. Okay, well, I've always wanted to maybe pick up a second or third language. Well, hey, if this is the easiest one, then why don't I start with that? I thought, why not find out if I can even handle the easiest language? He studied on his own for three years, he says, before he felt confident enough to try it out in real time at the North American Summer Esperanto Institute, known by its Esperanto acronym, NOSC. Now in its 50th year, NOSC is an intensive eight-day immersion program that attracts about 100 students who have at least basic Esperanto skills. I show up, and I show up a little bit late, uh, there's some traffic, and then I, I see this other guy who's sort of dressed like Doctor Who, kind of quirky guy. I'm like, you're probably an Esperanto speaker. So I greet him in Esperanto, and he sure enough is also, his train plane got in late. So we're both you know, conversing, trying to figure out where everybody is, and they were in the cafeteria, and so we're banging on the window, and we finally see them, and they come out and get us. But that was my first time using Esperanto, was talking to this Australian guy and trying to go, hey, are you here for this? And I thought, whoa, I actually can speak this. This is great. So it was kind of a trial by fire, because I also needed to use the bathroom, and they were able to tell me where the bathroom was. For that first hour or two, I was a little overwhelmed. But two days later, I gave a presentation on how to play the banjo, and I was doing it in Esperanto. I was giving a lecture and and making people laugh and being interesting in uh, this other language that I hadn't spoken aloud three days earlier. That's fascinating. Miller has gained a growing following on his YouTube channel, but language lessons are only the beginning. Also, I'm, I'm writing children's books that are bilingual. All of my books are in English and in Esperanto. So I wrote a trilogy about Captain Katie, the pirate allergic to gluten. My newest book is The Marriage of the Muffin Man. It has the entire story in English. And it has, after that, the entire story again in Esperanto. How else do you get a kid interested in Esperanto? You don't hand them a giant textbook, right? Uh, what do you do? So I think that is a great way to go, hey, want to check it out? Kids are curious. And so let's use that curiosity. Miller envisions a time in the not-too-distant future when a critical mass of young Esperanto speakers could pave the way for a surge of new Esperanto from movies or streaming episodes. And that would be a game changer. As far as we can find, there has been one American feature film entirely in Esperanto. Released in 1966, it was a bizarro horror flick called Incubus, and it starred this little unknown actor named William Shatner? Soon explode But when Miller talks about Esperanto, another movie comes to mind. It's a lot like Star Wars to me. And for me at this period in Esperanto history, I've told several people, I feel like I'm Obi-Wan when he's an old man on Tatooine. And he's like, ah, well, there were a lot of Jedi, but they all got slaughtered by the clones. Uh, That wasn't good. So there's a couple of us in hiding. Well, what can we do? All we can do is kind of prepare for the future. So right now, I feel like there are a lot of older, more mature people who are have free time in their hands who learn it. At the conventions, you'll find a lot of older folks. But a lot of the younger folks don't know it, and they don't easily get to access it. But a few years from now, if I make it easier to learn it faster by putting these videos up, it'll be 
easier to make more content, and there'll be enough viewers that are capable of enjoying it. So, if not exactly a return to the days before Babel, maybe more like a Jedi Alliance striving for balance, peace, and harmony. Professor Shore says that's exactly the kind of vision that Esperanto's creator had in mind. After all, as we know too well, common language is not enough if there isn't a common goal. I think Zamenhof was someone who didn't think of the ideal as going back to something perfect or something original or something God-given. I think he wanted language to be made by human beings and projected toward the future. I think this is at the heart of the Esperanto idea. I like to say Esperantists share a common future rather than a common past. I'd like to think that our inclusiveness and our openness to people who are different from us could lead to more of a sense that one really can change things by working together and building something. In other words, Dr. Hopeful's great hope is still just that. And there's much more work to be done, as expressed in the anthem he penned himself. Our diligent set of colleagues in peaceful labor will never tire, and until the beautiful dream of humanity for eternal blessing is realized. It sounds better in Esperanto. This episode of Annotated was written and produced by Victor Wishna. Sound design and editing by Kyle O'Neill. Our thanks to Esther Shore, Jose Antonio Vergara, and Alex Miller. Professor Shore's book, Bridge of Words, Esperanto and the Dream of a Universal Language, is available wherever books are sold. More information and other recommended reading on Esperanto can be found in the show notes, along with links to Alex Miller's YouTube channel and English Esperanto books for children. And our thanks to Book of the Month Club. Find a link in the show notes to find out more. Until next time, Duncan Provia Ashkultado. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>